Yes, not non-inferior. What's what's hard to understand about that? <laughs> I wonder how many people got excluded because of that. That's a pretty unfortunate. Uh, bummer. Yeah, if you've died Die out twice. of out of the hospital twice. And by imprisoned, don't you mean detained by Her Majesty's prison services? Has anyone ever finished the paper saying that no more research is warranted in this topic? Yeah, no. That I would love a mic drop conclusion from an author saying no more research is needed. We've finally solved the question. This is the Down East EM Podcast. Hi there, guys. Welcome back to the Down East EM Podcast. Uh, I'm Sam Potter, one of the second-year residents here at Maine Med. And joining me this week is Dr. Jason Hine. Hello, everybody. I didn't know if you are going to introduce me as a co-host <laughs> or what. I don't want to, there to be a hierarchy, Sam, but thank you for introducing me. Uh, yeah, no problem. Uh, this week, we're going to talk about a few um, topics or a few uh, articles that have been um, pretty popular recently, and that is looking at airway management strategies in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Definitely seeing it a lot mentioned on social media, and so we thought we'd tackle a few of those. Perfect. Great topic to dive into. Yeah, a lot of different articles come out recently, so uh, worth the discussion. So we're going to be diving into sort of three articles here, uh, sort of talking about different approaches uh, in airway management and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, and each one is kind of comparing itself to endotracheal intubation. So first one is the effect of bag mask ventilation, or BVM, versus endotracheal intubation during cardiopulmonary resuscitation on neuro outcomes after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, a randomized clinical trial. A mouthful there, but it's by Jaber et al. in JAMA, and it came out in February 2018. So basically, the clinical question they're asking here is BVM versus endotracheal intubation, which is better in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest? It's actually a non-inferiority study uh, trying to look at the BVM versus ETI for favorable neuro outcomes in these patients at 28 days. So the study design, how they approach it, it was a multi-center randomized trial in France and Belgium uh, comparing, again, BVM versus endotracheal intubation, where we'll be abbreviating that to ETI. They had about 2,000 patients, 2,043, all suffering cardiac arrest. The non-inferiority margin they set here is 1%. So basically, if it's much 1% better or 1% worse, you can make an assessment. If it's not, you can't. It's not proven to be inferior or superior. And this is important to note. Now, I mentioned that it's in France and Belgium. This is also noteworthy because these uh, study centers, each one of the 15 in France and five in Belgium, Sam, each one had a at least one mobile intensive care unit, and these were staffed by nurses and EMS physicians. By EMS physicians. So the people intubating here are not just paramedics. Yes, not just paramedics. EM docs in the back of a rig doing the two. Gotcha. And I think just to go back a little bit, I think it's important to point out this was a non-inferiority study, not a superiority study. So um, we're really just looking to see, it seems like, whether or not the, the BVM is non-inferior to the endotracheal intubation. So we're not going to be able to say if BVM is better. Right, right. And that's kind of their, their point is basically if I can scoop and run and bag and it's just as good, in other words, as intubating them, should I be doing that? Gotcha. All right. And then so their inclusion criteria here, patients older than 18 out of hospital cardiac arrest, receiving resuscitation by, you know, someone participating in the study, pretty clear. Exclusions is stuff that you would expect. They can't do it in prisoners. They can't do it in pregnant patients. Should not be doing it on patients with a DNR, which is good, <laughs> good that they did that. Yeah, that's ideal. <laughs> and then they added the, you know, suspected mass aspiration uh, just before the resuscitation started. So good to know. 
The intervention group was the BVM group, and these patients kind of had their standard 30 breath, sorry, 30 compressions, two breaths, standard care. Uh, the comparison here was the endotracheal intubation. Now, these were intubated by the on-scene physicians coming back to that mobile intensive care unit, and then once they were intubated, they had that asynchronous ventilation. Make sense? I think so. I, I get it. I, it definitely seems a little bit less applicable if we've got physicians intubating in the field in Europe, but I guess this is what we've got. Exactly. Yes. So the primary outcome, very clinically relevant, survival at 28 days with a favorable neurological outcome. This is a Glasgow-Pittsburgh cerebral performance category. <laughs> you got there. Yeah. All right. Let's say that again. This is the Glasgow-Pittsburgh cerebral performance category, CPC, of two or less. This is a little bit different than our modified Raken scale that we're used to often. Right. And we'll put in the show notes how that scale works out. Their secondary outcomes are a lot of clinically relevant ones as well. Survival to hospital admission, 28-day survival, regardless of whether their brain's alive or not, rate of ROSC, how hard it was to intubate them, how hard it was to bag them, did they regurgitate, and failure. So they looked at a lot of different secondary outcomes here. For sure. They dove into it a fair amount. But I have to give kudos to the authors. They kept a really relevant to the patient primary outcome. So the results. Primary outcome, rate of neuro intact or favorable survival in the BVM group was 4.3 and in the endotracheal group, 4.2. This was statistically significant. I'll say that again. A 0.1% difference was statistically significant, but it did not meet that 1% absolute difference needed to show a non-inferiority. Gotcha. So there, those are pretty similar numbers, though, 4.3 and 4.2, and yet it didn't meet the absolute difference. So can you explain that to me? So we're saying that this, so BVM was not non-inferior. Yes, not non-inferior. What's, what's hard to understand about that? <laughs> Maybe the double negative part of it. Basically... In order for the non-inferiority to be shown, they set the margin to be a 1% difference in the two. And because it was not 1% better in its own right, it was not non-inferior. It was neither inferior nor superior. It was inconclusive. And we'll talk about the author's conclusions a little bit later. But let's not you know, get, forget the force from the trees. BVN group, 4.3% neurointact survival. Mm-hmm. Endotracheal group 4.2. Seems pretty similar to me. Yes, equitable. Good, yes, good, good observational skills there. All right, let's look at some of the secondary outcomes. ROSC. The rate of ROSC was higher in the endotracheal group at 38.9 versus 34.2 in the BVM group. What do you think about that, Sam? It makes me think about the um, trial that we looked at for epinephrine. You yep. get ROSC, but you don't get better neurointact survival. Exactly. That's what I was, I was thinking about all those poor patients having their uh, life support withdrawn in the ICU. Uh, so survival to hospital admission, endotracheal group 32.6 versus 28.9. No statistical significant difference there. And then overall survival between the two groups at 28 days, not statistically significant. <laughs> Okay, so then what about the adverse events here? Uh, Difficult airway management or airway management difficulty as labeled by the clinicians on scene. It was 13.4% for the endotracheal group versus 18.1% for the BVM group. So only 13.5% of the intubations were deemed difficult in the back of a rig here. That's surprising, and again, that speaks to the fact that they have docs trained in this area to work in the out-of-hospital setting. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's nearing on numbers that we see kind of in the emergency room where we have kind of a three or 4%. I guess it's a little bit higher, but also the 18% BVM, I think, I think that's pretty accurate. I would say difficulty ventilating in, in one out of five patients. You know, I don't know what the Belgians and France, did you say? Yes. Belgians and French are doing with their facial hair at the moment, but that definitely is pretty consistent with the, the numbers that I would say I've experienced. For sure. I, I, I think that that's even a little bit generous sometimes if you think about, again, our facial hair. We are up in Maine, so we do need it to keep warm in the winters, but we also like our food here in America, and that affects our ability to get a good mass seal and keep a good grip on that chin. But other adverse events, failure of the airway technique itself was 2.1% in the endotracheal group, very low, versus 67 in the BVM, also low, but surprising numbers for their intubation group. Regurgitation, this is not a surprise. Essentially double, the endotracheal group had a 7.5 and the BVM had 15. So, uh, you know, you bag a patient through an entire ambulance ride to the hospital, you bet you you're going to increase the risk for regurgitation here. And then long pauses, this is interesting. There were more in the BVM group. They didn't have numbers here, but they saw 27 pauses greater than two seconds in the small population that they were able to assess CPR quality in versus 16 in the endotracheal group. Now, the authors make a pretty good point and probably a, a, a thoughtful consideration as to why. Remember that they're doing a 30 compressions to two ventilations resuscitation in these BVM patients. So if you're doing two breaths, that may lead to a greater than two-second pause. I'm, I'm surprised, honestly, that it, was, it wasn't 100% in the BVM group. <laughs> right. I don't know who's, who's giving bre- two breaths in less breaths than two, two seconds. seconds. Exactly, yeah. Those numbers may not add up exactly. All right, so then in the end, what do the authors conclude? Among patients without a hospital cardiac arrest, the use of BVM compared with endotracheal intubation failed to demonstrate non-inferiority or inferiority for survival with favorable neurologic function at 28 days. An inconclusive result, wah wah. A determination of equivalence or superiority of these techniques requires further research. So let's do a little analysis there. Sam, what are your first sort of thoughts on the article? Um, I think it's interesting. Um, I think that, you know, that they are true to their data and that they did a non-inferiority study and even though the results looked fairly equivalent for both strategies with the BVM and, and endotracheal intubation. They didn't meet that delta that they needed, so they can't say definitively that BVM is non-inferior. So I like that they, you know, they set out their primary outcome beforehand. They stuck to it, and the findings were what they were. But it definitely, um, you know, isn't super convincing. I think in my mind, you know, BVM is a good strategy, and I'm a little concerned about this. Um, physician in the field doing the intubations, like you mentioned before, the high success rate of, of intubation is, I, you know, not something that I think we're seeing here regularly. The other data sets that we've looked at for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest show a, a higher failure rate for first-pass success with intubation. So I'm not quite sure if I agree completely with how relevant it is and, and, and if it's super consistent with what we've seen in other studies. Yeah, for sure. You got to question the generalizability here. We don't have docs on the back of the rig. So different practice environment, maybe not different patient population, but different environment. As you kind of talked about a little bit, you know, you dive into this data a little bit. There are 2,000 plus change patients. Uh, Of the 1,023 who underwent intubation, there were 35, which is about 3.5%, who were seen to be impossible for intubation and got BVM without a real clear explanation as to why. 
There were also another 102 who had recognized esophageal intubations at 10% of their population. So definitely not a flawless, smooth, perfect procedure be doing in the back of an ambulance. But on the other side of that same coin, there were 1,020 or so patients who got BVM, and 14% of them were converted to endotracheal intubation. So that speaks to how difficult it is to keep a mask seal going for that length of time. There's difficulties on both sides of that coin. So then sort of my conclusion or takeaway from the, the Jaber study, you know, it shows equipose. It shows that they're basically equal, right? That 0.1% difference, we could talk about non-inferiority or not, and I agree it's nice that they were true to their word. It shows that they're about equal in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. The BVM group has a higher risk for the airway being difficult to maintain and regurgitation. The endotracheal group was troubled by esophageal intubations and technically difficult procedure to do. But in my mind, it again comes back to, is this the patient population we're going to be seeing here in Maine or in the United States? I, I'm not sure, um, and I think there's you know, better studies about other airway techniques that we could be doing. As a nice segue there, Sam, what's our next article? Well, I thought I would talk at you about the uh, Airways 2 trial. This was an article um, entitled The Effect of a Strategy of Supraglottic Airway Device versus Tracheal Intubation During Out-of-Hospital Cardiac Arrest on Functional Outcome, the Airways 2 Randomized Clinical Trial. This was by Benger et al., and it was published in JAMA in August of 2018. Um, so two differences here. Number one, we're looking at a superiority trial, and we're looking at supraglottic airway devices now versus endotracheal intubation. So we're moving away from BVM here. So their clinical question was, is a supraglottic airway superior to endotracheal intubation as the initial advanced airway management strategy in adults with non-traumatic out-of-hospital cardiac arrest? So not looking at trauma patients here. The study design, it was a multi-center cluster randomized trial of paramedics in four ambulances, four ambulance services, excuse me, in England. Uh, it was very important to note that it was the paramedic here who's randomized rather than the patient. So the paramedics were cluster randomized to either use supraglottic devices or perform endotracheal intubation. Mm. And this is done through practicality because of the nature of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So the paramedics are using these. They're not volunteering randomization to be intubated or have a supraglottic placed on themselves. Yeah, I think that makes it a little bit easier to find patients. Okay, fair enough. So you're randomizing the paramedic to use a certain technique, and that's just done for ease. Okay, go ahead. Right. So the population, this is adults aged 18 or older with non-traumatic arrests, like we mentioned, who are being treated by the participating uh, EMS units, and four large EMS services were you know, uh, enrolling in the study, and they had a catchment area of about 21 million people, which is about 40% of England's population. So a pretty large-scale trial for the UK here. Oh, yeah. um, so for inclusion criteria, they enrolled patients who uh, looked or were 18 years or older in, and were suffering from a non-traumatic cardiac arrest. So exclusion criteria, they excluded prisoners, um, anyone who had been previously recruited to this study. I wonder how many people got excluded because of that. That's a yeah. pretty unfortunate. Uh, it's a bummer. Yeah, if you've died, died out twice. of out of the hospital twice, um, they also excluded patients where resuscitation was deemed inappropriate. Um, if by the time EMS got there, they already had an advanced airway in place. Not too sure about that one. I imagine by a non-participating EMS unit. Um, if they were already enrolled in a different trial, and they were also excluded if they had limited mouth opening, so less than two centimeters. Interestingly, they did not exclude pregnant patients. Mm. And 
By imprisoned, don't you mean detained by Her Majesty's prison services? I did, yes. It is Thank in you. England, yes. Thank you. Okay. I apologize for that. Go ahead. Continue. Um, so for interventions, they looked at supraglottic airways. Um, and in this study, they're using the eye gel. So important to note that. They're not using um, different LMAs. They're using the eye gel device. For comparison, they're comparing um, with patients who underwent intratracheal intubation as the initial advanced airway technique. So primary outcome. Um, Primary outcome in this study was a modified Rankin score at discharge or 30 days, if still in the hospital, of 0 to 3. And 0 to 3 is what they defined as a good neurologic outcome. Okay. We've talked about this a little bit before. I don't know if I want to call myself uh, having a good neurologic outcome if I'm at a modified Rankin of 3, but that's the cutoff they used. Yeah, and that's a familiar one, right? We, we use that in the paramedic too. Um, the modified Rankin score 0 to 3, we'll put another comment in the show notes there. But that's kind of standard fare for these types of studies. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So secondary outcomes, initial ventilation success, uh, regurgitation, uh, loss of established airway was one of the secondary outcomes, um, the sequence in which the airway interventions were delivered, whether they got ROSC or not. Um, they looked at whether patients had an advanced airway in place um, when they uh, obtained ROSC. Uh, they also looked at the chest compression fraction and time of death. So a lot of different secondary outcomes here. Yeah. I actually like, even though it seems arbitrary, that was there an advanced airway in place when ROS was achieved? kind of helps with that data problem that you have all the time with these kinds of studies where you thump on their chest for a few seconds and you defibrillate them and they are talking to you again. That's a different patient. They didn't need the airway. The airway probably wasn't part of their you know, good neuro outcome. So good on them. So getting to the meat of the results, the primary outcome that they looked at was um, the comparison between the supraglottic airway group, which had a 6.4% neurointact survival rate compared to the endotracheal group, which had a 6.8%. 6.4, 6 6.8, okay. Not a major difference. And not statistically significant. Okay. Um, they did a few subgroup analyses. They showed that in total, about 81% of all the patients enrolled were successfully uh, managed with an advanced airway, so either the supraglottic airway or the endotracheal uh, intubation was successful. So about 19% didn't end up getting an airway, probably either yep, BVM or, or no airway. And there's probably two extremes of that, I imagine. Those, like we said, get shocked once and are you know talking and saying, thanks, carrying on with their day. And those that were resuscitated for a minute or two and realized that is futile and they stopped. Right, right. The reason why we point this out is because when you uh, do, when they looked at the further subgroup analysis of the patients who did have successful placement of an advanced airway, there was a significant difference. And that was that 3.9% receiving a supraglottic airway versus 2.6% in the intubation group had favorable neuro outcomes. Interesting. So the plot thickens a little bit there. Yeah, there's a little bit of a washout when you take into account the failure rates. Mm, okay. So secondary outcomes, whether or not they were successful um, with their first choice, um, there was a higher rate of success with supraglottic airway, which makes sense. It's a little easier to place an eye gel than it is to uh, you know, pass an ET tube in the field. They looked at regurgitation. There was no difference there. Um, as well as a couple other things. Yeah, okay. So yeah, that's interesting. When they take out the patients where you don't have any airway placed at all, the supraglottic had better neurosurvival. When you take everyone together, they're equal. I'm not really sure what to make of that totally, but that secondary outcome is worth noting, that initial success, better with the supraglottic, with the eye gel, that makes sense to me. 
Yeah. Yep. So for the author's conclusion, they state, among patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, randomization to a strategy of advanced airway management with a supraglottic airway device compared with tracheal intubation did not result in a favorable functional outcome at 30 days. Interesting. I'd imagine they the phrasing there is interesting. The randomization to a strategy of, I bet you they chose their words carefully there. I'd imagine that's probably because they had some crossover or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not quite sure why they why they phrase it that way, but just to get, get back to it, it seems that you know this was a superiority trial and they failed to show superiority of supraglottic airway device over endotracheal intubation. Okay. A um, couple other things to point out in this trial. Um, the study protocol allowed uh, the paramedics to move from one group to the other. So um, they recommended two attempts with the strategy that they were randomized to, but if they couldn't get it after that and they deemed it in the patient's best interest, then they could you know, move to the other group. So this comes into play in the endotracheal group where a fair number of patients moved from being randomized to receiving uh, intubation, but they were probably they were unsuccessful, and for some reason they get moved to the supraglottic airway group. And that makes sense. You know, again, England is more like like us in terms of their structure and the pre-hospital environment. They don't have docs doing this, so that's makes sense in terms of their phrasing of their final conclusion. Randomization to a strategy of doesn't do this. But if you look at patients that you know get one or the other intervention, maybe there's an outcome difference. And if you break down the numbers, you do see a pretty big transition rate. You know, like 20%, I think, in the article of patients in the endotracheal group got the eye gel. So big, big crossover in this study. Right. Absolutely. And more specifically, that same group. If if 20% of the patients getting intubated started out with an eye gel, I think that definitely muddies the waters. You know, you wonder if. That, to me, means that either someone who wasn't qualified to intubate or someone who couldn't intubate that patient placed the eye gel initially. And so that, to me, you know, is the reason why these devices exist is because they are easy to place, they're reliable, and, you know, it seems as though they would be uh, the right choice in this patient population. But we can't say that definitively based on this trial. Gotcha. So for our takeaway, I think it's safe to say in patients with an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest when they're receiving advanced airway management um, or placement of an advanced airway device by a paramedic, it seems that supraglottic airway devices result in higher initial success rates. They have lower uh, need for a rescue airway, and they did seem to have a better 30-day neuro-intact survival than an endotracheal uh, strategy. But data failed to meet the delta needed to show superiority in this trial. Cool. All right, and then so sort of going on to the next type of advanced airway, we talked about BVM, we talked about an IGEL supraglottic, and then we're going to be talking about the LT, the laryngeal tube. So for our last paper, uh, this is a study by Wang et al. in JAMA, August 2018. It's titled, The Effect of a Strategy of Initial Laryngeal Tube Insertion Versus Endotracheal Intubation in 72-Hour Survival in Adults without a hospital cardiac arrest, a randomized clinical trial. They didn't want to wait that long. They didn't want to wait the 28 or 30 days. They just want to know, are you live at, t- at 72 hours? A little more impatient here <laughs> in the LT group uh, study that we have. So uh, study, their clinical question, you know, 
is what is the effect of an initial airway management strategy using an LT, laryngeal tube, uh, compared to endotracheal intubation on survival among adults with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest? It was a multicenter pragmatic cluster and crossover study. Uh, so they included about 3,000 patients with non-traumatic cardiac arrest requiring an advanced airway and managed by EMS. So pretty similar patient population to the other trial looking at supraglottic airways. Yeah, similar to the second one we talked about, a little different than the one that was done in France and Denmark, similar to England. Uh, but this is, a, you know, again, that kind of crossover uh, nature of it. It's The cluster is similar to the one where we were seeing in the IGEL, but one thing that they did nicely in this is that they had the paramedics then switch. They went from the endotracheal group to the LT, or they went from the LT to the endotracheal. So they didn't just get really good at one strategy, they did a little bit of both. I see. Cool. All right, so inclusion, just anyone without a hospital cardiac arrest, they had to look or be older than 18, and they were excluded You know, if they had suffered a traumatic arrest, or uh, if they were initially resuscitated by EMS uh, personnel with the ability to obtain an airway who were not associated with the trial. Pretty good, clean inclusion and exclusion criteria there. So the way they structured it, again, they had these 27, it was 27 EMS agencies uh, that were trained in this study group. Uh, they were based out of Alabama and the University of Washington. Those were the coordinating centers. And they took these clusters of EMS personnel, paramedics, trained them in both the LT and the endotracheal intubation, and they gave them several months at one and then switched them over to the other. And then the primary outcome, again, was the 72-hour survival, but they had some important secondary outcomes as well, including ROSC, survival to hospital discharge, favorable neurologic status at hospital discharge, which is important. Uh, and then they had some key adverse events that they looked at as well. All good? Any questions? I don't think so. It looks like um, they were using the same, again, modified rank and scale score of three or lower. So we're pretty consistent with our definition of favorable neurologic status. Exactly. So what was the primary outcome? Uh, results, the 72-hour survival was 18.3 in the LT group versus 15.4 in the endotracheal group. So a de uh, decent uh, bit of difference there when they kind of accounted for randomization and interim analysis, they saw a, an overall difference of about 3% between the two groups. Okay, so 3% better for the LT group. For the LT group. Yes. Okay. Secondary outcomes, uh, LT versus endotracheal intubation, ROSC, they saw it was 28% for the LT, 24% for the endotracheal intubation, uh, which was statistically significant as well. Hospital survival, which is uh, more clinically relevant or patient-centered, I guess, 10.8 versus 8.1, 10.8 in the King LT group uh, versus 8.1 in the intubation group. Mm -hmm. And then the last one being the probably the most important, the favorable neurologic status at discharge 7.1% for the LT versus 5% for the endotracheal group. Yeah, I mean, again, these numbers are always a little depressing when you look at them, how low they are. Yeah. But that, you know, for for your chances going from 5 to 7, I'll, I'll take it. Yeah, right, an absolute difference of 2%. Um, that's a huge change. And they, they had a decently sized uh, patient population. They had 3,000 patients they looked at in total. Uh, so they were able to show that that was uh, a statistically significant difference. Um, in a really relevant clinical outcome. So the authors concluded the strategy of an initial laryngeal tube insertion compared with endotracheal intubation was associated with a greater likelihood of 72-hour survival, but given limitations in study design and findings, 
additional research is warranted. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, has anyone ever finished the paper saying that no more research is warranted in this topic? Yeah, no, they, I would love a mic drop conclusion from an author saying no more research is needed we've finally solved the question yeah that would be nice i don't think we're there with this uh topic so far but this is interesting so this is this is different than the uh supraglottic airway versus intratracheal intubation study that we just talked about in england what do you think is different in this paper in the u.s the the king is better in is it the king is better than the igel or is it the patient population what's going on i i i honestly don't think it would necessarily be either i think that the the differences we're seeing are small. Um, I think maybe that crossover rate. I, obviously, you need to think about that in these groups maintaining their ability in both both um, types of advanced airway. But I think that this was probably just one of those slightly more statistically favorable outcome things. But I don't know that you can take from this that the laryngeal tube is better than a uh, supraglottic airway or IGL. So yeah, just kind of dissecting some of the numbers there a little bit more. Some really relevant and important numbers and pretty dramatic, maybe even more dramatic than they may be in real life or in practice that we're seeing. Uh, the initial success rate for the LT group, it was 90%. That's not too surprising. It's pretty easy to shove that thing down the oral pharynx. But their um, success in the endotracheal group was only 51%, 52%. So that does get back to the fact that in most places, Paramedics are not intubating on the regular. You know, the introduction talks about how they do it maybe once per year. So that low uh, frequency process is going to lead to many more of those esophageal intubations and things like that, like we're maybe seeing in England, less so like than the one that we were initially talking about where docs are doing it. But that's a remarkable difference. That's a, what, 40% absolute difference in initial success rate. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think there's, there's again, two sides to that. One, 50% may seem pretty low, and then it probably is, you know, if you're going to go for it, it's a coin flip whether or not you're going to get a successful, successful first pass. But if they're only doing this procedure one time a year, you know, 50% of the time being successful, I'm not sure if they have video laryngoscopy or not available to them. But I guess, you know, on a personal perspective, I, I'm impressed that they're able to get it half the time. But on the other side, only being successful half of the time is also not great. I would say so too. I think a coin flip, if you're going to say, all right, I'm going to intubate you now. There's a good, there's a 50% chance I'm going to get, well, actually 51. So more than half of the time I'm going to get it. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> not a very, I'd like someone else to do my tube, please. Um, and interestingly, when, when docs, you know, receive these patients, that's kind of more to our wheelhouse. 64% of the LTs were converted in the emergency department. And that's worth noting uh, clinical relevance, I, I'm going to ask you, Sam, what are you guys doing when you receive patients with a supraglottic device in your department? Yeah, um, you know, we have so many residents around and everyone's always looking for an intubation. Uh, I think that we always have the manpower available pretty much when these patients roll in. We switch the supraglottic device or King device right into an endotracheal tube pretty, pretty immediately. Okay, yeah, I think that's fair too, especially if you have a, a resource-rich environment. Um, and I think you know we have to mention the fact that the second study we looked at, the IGEL, there was no difference. This study is showing that the King LT or the laryngeal tube is actually better. It's worth noting that when they did a post hoc analysis and kind of corrected for some of the elements, it gets to a little bit of statistical mumbo jumbo, but the statistical advantage of the LT disappears there. And I think that just kind of speaks a little bit maybe to that fragility index, that kind of these very rare 
uh, outcomes are very sensitive to little manipulations in the data. So for me personally, I'm not taking away from this that the, that the laryngeal tube is better than the supraglottic. I think the, the results from those two studies say the same, that we're all basically in the same boat whether we intubate or do a supraglottic airway. Does that make sense to you, Sam? I think so. It just seems uh, that there's less risks associated with placement of a King LT or a supraglottic airway device as well. It's quick. It's easy. It doesn't take long to, to train how to do. It's not something you know, that requires a lot of practice. So for me, you know, I think if the, uh, if the paramedics are showing up at my apartment tomorrow and I have had an arrest, I'd like them to just throw in a, an IGEL or an LMA or a King LT and just start bagging as fast as possible, please, and then wait till we get to the ED before we start mucking around with a laryngoscope. Yeah. You think that you're going to be having your arrest at home? Statistically, what do you think the chances are that you're in the hospital most of the time? Yeah, I guess that depends whether or not it's before or after I finish residency. So I've got a pretty good chance of getting a laryngoscope, I guess, if I fall down here in the hospital. Yeah, if you're here sixty percent of your time, you're you're gonna get a you know gonna get a tube here in the department, which is great. You're welcome for having that the umbrella safety here as a resident. Yeah, thank you. I'm gonna Absolutely. be looking at my fellow residents a little bit differently now. <laughs> uh, the takeaway for me, I think, is kind of. There's two folds. There's you know because I, I serve two different roles. I work in the community setting and I also do some stuff in the academic. In my community medicine role, I definitely recognize the low numbers of intubations that are performed by my uh, rural EMS colleagues, and uh, recognize that there's the prolonged seam time, there's the failure rates, there's the unrecognized esophageal intubation rates that are real risks to our patients. So in that setting, I'm absolutely recommending some type of supraglottic device. I would not say that I think the IGEL is inferior to the King LT based off this data. I would say that the two are equitable to each other and probably in the appropriate hands are equitable to an intubation, but have lower risk that I just mentioned. And I would actually extend that even further into the in-emergency department arrest that we experience, depending certainly on staffing. You know, There are times when I am the only doc in the emergency department and I have two or three nurses and maybe if I'm lucky, an RT. So in those cases, you know, I think putting the supraglottic device in and working on the arrest itself and being efficient with CPR and defibrillation is in the patient's advantage. Now, taking that and sort of looking at it from the academic side in the resource-rich environment, if we're getting these patients, I still think that our paramedics, even in the academic environment, are not intubating at the frequency that I would want for real confidence in having a high success rate. I don't think it's 50%, but I still would be you know, a little nervous with a 60 or a 70% success rate. If you put it in the esophagus and you don't know it, you're basically, that's a life-ending event. The chance of ROS there is low to none, probably. So I want the EMS personnel to do that supraglottic, have a quick scene time, get going, get compressions, and bring them to us. where our residents in a research-rich environment with video laryngoscopy, all these things, is going to convert that to a, an endotracheal tube. So yeah, with that, in, with that in mind, we all have different uh, practice environments, and you can tell that we have to think about things differently depending on where we are and what we do uh, with our resources. So we'd love to hear from you guys on this topic. You know, we are certainly not the only ones that have expertise and thoughts on it, so please you know, use the comment section, reach out to us on Facebook, on Twitter, to give us your comments, feedback, and start a discussion. And there's plenty of other stuff uh, to learn from on the Down East DM website. Awesome, guys. Thank you for listening.